So, and I wish everyone could have seen this. It was like, it needed air traffic controller or something. Um, last month, our oldest, Eden, turned 15. And she wanted to have a birthday party when Leslie was out of state. Because Hayden Copeland, who is now back with her family in Kenya, was still here. So she wanted to have it that day. She, she wanted to have like 10, 15-year-old girls over at the house with just me. And... Um, she wanted a few of them, like three of them, to stay the night because I was not letting any more than three do it. But I was like, this is going to be really creepy. If just me with a bunch of 15-year-old girls. And so I did what you do. I called Adam Bledsoe. Adam and I are really good friends going back from college. And I was like, hey, I need you to put your college hat on because I have a crazy idea. What if you and Hunter, because Amanda was out of state too, what if you and Hunter came over that night and stayed the night at our house? Y'all had a slumber party with us. And uh, you know what makes uh, one creepy guy less creepy? Two creepy guys. And so Adam does. And uh, you know, a lot of PV people came over and, and dropped off their kids. One of them was Tara McCain who was dropping off her daughter. And as she was backing up, she backed up into our mailbox. If you could show that picture. This is our mailbox. This thing is older than me. And when I first saw that, I was like, way to go, Tara. I didn't know that thing could get knocked over. Um, but it got knocked over. And anyway, so Adam is staying the night. Adam, if you don't know, is like six foot 100. He's very tall. And our house is not made for tall people. And Judah kept calling him a giant. So he took pictures to show us what we look like from his perspective. So here's what we look like from his perspective. Here's Hannah. Hannah's next, and here's me. <laughs> this is what he looks. This is what he sees all the time, according to Adam. Adam stays the night. Uh, he gets up early the next morning, and he goes and plays tennis. And he comes back early in the morning. He comes back, and he's dressed all in white because of Wimbledon. Which maybe, if you're a tennis person, that makes sense. And his face isn't super excited. Because my brother's silver lab, who's like a hundred pounds, saw Adam and immediately ran over when he was coming back and peed all over his feet. If you could. That's what... <laughs> and Judah was like, you know why? It's because Goose think, Goose is the dog's name. Goose thinks you're as big as a tree and he's just marking his territory. Anyway, so that happens. And Tara, after um, our mailbox got knocked over, Tara called Johnny Graves, another one of our members who's really handy, and told, her, told him what happened. And so the next uh, day, Johnny comes over with some uh, mortar and comes over and fixes it. And I helped, <laughs> which is a very generous word for what I did. <laughs> I stood by and encouraged and did really good because I don't know how to do that stuff because, come on, those books aren't going to read themselves. Anyway, I, I tell you all that is just one snapshot into the life of our church. July 4th, the Senior Saints had a July 4th party, which we do, uh, you know, just different parties throughout the years to help us stay connected and in each other's lives and loving on each other. And they invited uh, Leslie and the kids as well. And so they, they do this, we have a potluck, a meal, and then they have a competition where you, the competition was you put a paper plate on your head and you draw the American flag. And it was not pretty. It didn't look like very patriotic, let's say. I mean, it was just a bunch of scribbles, but they had a, a competition with prizes. So there was going to be, uh, top three would get prizes. 
And Miss Karen Hughes uh, was the judge, but she was like, I need some help. And so she made a strategic error and got our two youngest, Joel and Judah, to be helpers on the judging. And uh, Joel and Judah found out that there were prizes. So this is the way it plays out. Third place, everybody's waiting with bated breath. Miss Sarah got third place. And we saw it and it was like, wow, that actually looks like an American flag. Unlike everybody else's, it looks really, really good. And if this gets third place, well, who got second and first? And so Miss Karen's like, all right, who gets second? And then she announces, Joel Stormont for second place. <laughs> and that's when the group started realizing the error of their ways because a Stormont got the first place one as well. And everybody laughed and it was so funny. Uh, but Brother Fred McFadden was like, it's a rigged election. All <laughs> and I just tell you that as snapshots, that's just last month in the life of this church. And those stories abound here. And if you grew up in church, they probably do too. It's a snapshot into pictures of brothers and sisters who are also friends. That's who we are. This is a series that we're bringing to an end today on the culture of PV. Culture is a word from Latin that means how we take care of each other. And I've got to tell you, this is one of the strengths of our fellowship. If you're coming from other places, um, this is one of the things that growing up in Churches of Christ, I love about Churches of Christ. I have had opportunities in ministry life to go preach in a few different tribes, a couple times non-denominational churches, once an Assemblies of a God church. But I love us because there's this thicker community, thicker relationships. And because this is so countercultural from the world around us and also even sometimes from other churches around us. We have to be intentional about keeping it. At one point in ministry when I was working in Texas, there was a, a, a time when the church I was working for couldn't get volunteers on a regular basis and they noticed that people weren't showing up for like group life or Wednesday night gatherings. And as we were trying to understand, one of the ministry team said, you know what? It's just, this is the way the world is now. The world has changed. People are just so busy. When Josh and I both came back here from Texas, one of the things we noticed and loved about PV was how that world wasn't here. And what that looked like was that we showed up for each other. At potlucks, at small groups, on Wednesday night, all the different things, we loved being together. And since COVID, I got to tell you, I'm seeing signs of what happened in Texas that, by the way, no one in Texas wanted. But it just happened one individual decision at a time. I'm seeing signs of that here. It's, it's not accelerated, but I see signs. And since this is a series on culture, I want to let us know how we're doing around here. And here's how it plays out, honestly. Nobody intentionally does it. Our schedules get out of hand. We sign up for too many events. We take that extra task at work. And we don't think about the hidden costs behind it. And there are hidden costs behind it, like primarily maybe your happiness, if that matters to you. There has been over the last 20 years thousands and thousands of pages written on how to be happy. And this is from secular people, from religious people, from people all across the West, because they've noticed happiness is on decline. Even while all these other things are supposed improvements, uh, happiness of individual people is on decline. And so if you want to know how to be happy, here are the four things that all that research basically says. 
First off, if you want to be happy, have two or three close friends. That does not mean social media friends. It means people that in real life you know and they know you truly. Number two, be a part of a nuclear family. If, um, if that's impossible for you, do intentional life together with community. Number three, have a meaningful job. It does not matter how much it pays. Not when it comes to happiness. You might want to pay a light bill somehow, so that might matter. But when it comes to happiness, have a meaningful job. And number four, have a faith or philosophy that helps make meaning of your life and helps you deal with suffering and hard times. And what all four of those things have in common is they call us to surrender. To surrender our uh, um, autonomy and be in a mutual life-giving relationship. But the sad truth is, and see if this doesn't ring true to you in your own life, the sad truth is most Westerners would prefer freedom and autonomy than relationships and an opportunity to love and be loved. And it has consequences. The Surgeon General under Barack Obama, President Obama, uh, said, In my time as Surgeon General, during my time caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. In the book, Them, Ben Sass, Them, uh, the subtitle, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, Ben Sass, the author, says, Do you know what's behind the, the, the uh, political warfare these days about how what, why we hate each other? It's not what we say it is. It's loneliness. C.S. Lewis said once about the Christian faith that what it basically boils down to is in the service of King Jesus, we are called to come out of the prison of ourself and come to give our life away in love to one another. This is Jesus. This is central to Jesus. It's central to the New Testament. Love is central. And love is different than, I mean, love is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. We talk about it all the time. It's on bumper stickers and hashtags and all these things. And almost nobody recognizes the reason this is everywhere is because of the Christian story. You realize, like pre-Christian, this wasn't the way people, they loved each other. They loved other people. But it wasn't the level it is today. And because it's everywhere, and because it's a word that, is almost meaningless the way it's thrown around. Maybe instead of starting with the dictionary and figuring out what it says, because it normally is a, a, an emotional attachment to someone else. Maybe instead of starting with the dictionary, start with the story of God who defines what love is and why it's talked about so much today. Because the story of God is this. God comes to this family, Abraham and Sarah, and He chooses them not because of them or anything that they can offer. He chooses them out of grace. And He says to Abram and Sarah, I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for me. I am choosing you and I make a covenant. I will be faithful and steadfast and full of mercy, grace, and truth. And He does. God keeps His covenant with Abraham and Abraham's family. So much so that Abraham, uh, that covenant keeps going through turbulent times like the book of Judges or King David. And then ultimately, God keeps his covenant again through prophet Jeremiah who he says, listen, these outward external regulations that are so crushing and hard to bear, I will give a new heart to you. He keeps his covenant again when he renews the covenant and gives a new covenant through King Jesus. This is God's faithful covenant. This is the presence of what love looks like. Now listen, everybody 
thinks they want love. But love is a great idea until the kitchen sink starts flooding or the kids start getting noisy. Love is a great idea until that person that does the thing that is unforgivable must be forgiven. Love is a great idea when you need mercy. It's a really hard thing when you need to give mercy. And this is why we start with God as the definition of love. Because love means something. And it probably means more than we think it does. And so, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. That passage Brother Lynn just mentioned at communion. For the first 11 chapters of Romans, this this early Christian Paul is doing what I just did. He's telling this church in the capital city of the world. He's telling this church what it looks like to follow God. Who God is. The history of God's activity. That God chooses Abraham. That God is faithful and steadfast and keeps his covenant. That God has given a new covenant. And if you want to know the whole story of Jesus for your life, you can read this little letter. But after he talks about God in Jesus Christ has has defeated sin, has given us a new way to live, his death and resurrection is not just a historical event, but a new reality. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything I just said, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When I was growing up, when I would hear that, do not conform to the pattern of this world, I was thinking Paul was basically saying, look, just don't watch rated R movies, right? Like, just don't do that stuff that those people do. But it's a lot deeper than that. It's not just some generic call to holiness, Because this world has a pattern. And the pattern takes a lot of different shapes. But basically, it's a pattern of the love of self. So here is my best guess at trying to sum up the pattern of this world as it comes at us on a daily basis. And again, it takes a lot of different shapes. In the Western world, the pattern sounds like this. Number one, the highest good is individual freedom and self-determination. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict uh, individual freedom or self-determination must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Number three, the world will slowly improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. And technology, uh, in particular the internet, will motor this progression to some kind of utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's kind of self-defined quest for individual freedom. And uh, any deviation from this will not be tolerated, ironically. Therefore, when we talk about, um, even in, in the Western world, and again, this is not global, this is not the way it's normally been defined, but words like justice are now used to describe not what people throughout history have considered justice, but protecting people's individual self-expression. Underneath this, in the pattern of this world, is this idea that human beings, number five, human beings are just inherently good, which despite a lot of empirical evidence otherwise, we believe that. 
Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. Number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is praised. Let me just sum up all that pattern of this world. You do you. And don't you tell anybody else how to do them. Now, you can disagree with that. You may say, I missed that. But I think that's largely true. And by the way, it is hard to avoid because our hearts are being shaped by this. This is in every movie from Frozen to The Greatest Showman to, you know, The Matrix. This is in the songs we listen to. Throw off the expectations of the people around you and you do you. And that's a great way to live a very lonely, sad, unfulfilling life. I used to think Paul is just saying, just be generically holy, but he's not. He's talking about how to live with one another. That's what he's going to talk about next. I've told some of you before, my favorite verse, or one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament is Romans 16.22. It's at the end of this epic letter. Paul has been dictating this letter to um, a, a guy who doesn't have a name. His, his, his name is Tertius, which means thirdborn. This is a slave who was born into slavery, and the Romans were so efficient, they wouldn't give a name. They would just say what order they were born in. And he was taught how to take down the dictation of free men. But now he's a part of this church of Jesus Christ. And he notices after hours of dictating that Paul has stopped talking. And that Paul is looking at him, seeing him. And that Paul says, Tertius, you go ahead and greet them too. You're a brother in the Lord. And so Tertius said, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. It's stunning. There's not another thing like this in the ancient world. This one verse shows the difference between that Jesus made in the world. How do you get there? How do you get to being the kind of church that does, that lives this way, that has this kind of community? Well, that's what Paul is going to say. In Romans 12, 9, starting in verse 9, he says, Love must be sincere. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Real love reorders your emotion. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, Faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited, do not repay anyone evil for evil, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. And then he goes on to say, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Paul is giving a list of gifts that people have. It's not an exhausted list. He's saying if you have mercy, use it. If you're generous, use it cheerfully. And then he says this is how we live with one another. He's describing mutuality. He's describing life together. Be devoted to one another 
in brotherly love. Don't seek to get honor. Seek to give honor. Be willing to associate with people in low position. Share with the other people in the Lord that you know who are in need. Never be lacking in spiritual zeal, but keep serving. How, Paul? Well, by the way we serve and love one another. That's how. There's a comedian I like named John Mulaney. He is 40 years old, but about five or six years ago when he was in his 30s, he stood up and addressed kind of my generation. And he said, you know what? Canceling plans, it's like heroin. It's, so, it's such an amazing feeling. It's such instant joy. And it, it was a funny thing that was a way of saying a really hard truth. Because I bet everybody in here knows what it's like to cancel plans. You have a full night and all of a sudden you don't. You can stay home and do whatever you want. You do you. But part of the reason we're so lonely and tribalistic and struggle with mental health and emotional stuff and spiritual dryness is because we're choosing this way of life one day at a time. Um, Canceling plans is like heroin. And heroin doesn't end well for anybody. There's a guy named Jake Metter who is from Lincoln, Nebraska, and a few months ago he wrote a book called Water Christians 4. And right in the middle of it, he tells a story that's unremarkable, except that it's quite remarkable. It's about his parents, his elderly parents, and how his father and mother kind of took in this young woman who didn't have a dad. They grew up, she grew up around them and part of their family. And when she was moving houses, Jake's father said, I'll help you move your furniture. This happened just three days before he went into the hospital and almost died. And because he didn't know he was sick, he woke up on the Saturday, he said he was going to help her move furniture, and he couldn't breathe. And his, Jake's mom said to his dad, hey, tell her, you can't do it, she'll understand. And his dad said, no. No. That young woman grew up without a dad. She's used to people making promises and not keeping them. I'm going to help. And he put on his shoes and he drove his old truck. And a few hours later, the furniture was moved. And that story moves me so much, not because it's foreign but because it's just another example of what happens among God's people around the world every day. And it's not going to make the news. It's not fantastic. It's common. But deep in my soul, I want to be that kind of person. And I bet you do too. This is the life Jesus invites us into. Not some faux parody of a way of fake church. It's the life of love. And to not conform to the pattern of this world is in a world that has a love of choice. There are so many options for you to do you. In a world that has a love of choice, it is for baptized believers who have made that decision to make the choice of love. The call is to bind ourselves in a world that constantly tells us we need to throw off all bindings. Because, I don't know about you, but freedom from love is just too free for me. We live in a world that is growing increasingly, increasingly selfish. 
And I want to ask, what's the solution? Is it more technology? Is it, is it more freedom? Notice what Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And by the way, this is who this church has been historically. It's what I found stunning when I first came back from Texas. But as COVID happened and as we're putting life back together, I think it's important to see, and just to name honestly, our world has sped up even more. And we have to be really intentional right now about keeping a certain amount of flexibility in our life to be available for each other. I know this, this could sound like an angry, get off my lawn kind of thing. I hope it doesn't. Let me tell you what it looks like in our family. So um, our middleist, Hannah, is 10 years old, and she's really good at gymnastics. Like, probably going to win a gold medal in the Olympics good. So if you want an autograph, I would get it now. Um, well, because she's really good at Olympics, uh, this summer they were like, hey, we want to promote her to the absolute top that we don't teach a higher class than this. And we were, you know, she was really excited. It was super cool. And they were like, actually, we're going to flip from doing two practices a week to three. And they're going to be on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And immediately Hannah's heart fell because she knows who we are. And we talked about it as a family. And we knew that we could have, and, and that we probably wouldn't have got any pushback that we could have dropped Hannah off at gymnastics practice on Wednesday night and come to church and picked her up. And because of my job, I am the beneficiary of wisdom of lives that have gone before me. And maybe you don't get this experience, so I want to share this with you. Because the choice as a family was pretty easy for us to make. Because I've done a hundred plus funerals, and a lot of those are senior saints, which means that the person who's helping me write the funeral to honor their parent is their kid who was raised by them. And dozens of times in those funerals, when kids were telling me what stood out to them about their parent, what stood out to them was something they initially resisted. I can't tell you how many times the wonderful world of Disney has come up in riding a funeral. Some of y'all know what that means. Because on Sunday nights when I was growing up, ABC and their evil plotting put wonderful world of Disney on Sunday nights. And so many kids that were raised going to church never got to see an episode. Any show of hands? Anybody in that category? Yeah, you see what I'm talking about? I'm not making this up. Yeah, me either. And yet looking back in hindsight... Those kids didn't have this kind of, how dare they? In fact, repeatedly it was. I knew what was the most important thing to my parents. And eventually, it became one of the most important things to me. And so Hannah practices on Mondays and Fridays. Because that's not who we are. My identity is wrapped up with you. I don't get to define myself. I have received my identity just like you. And your identity is wrapped up in us. I want to I reconsider the idea of indebted. Because we live in a world that doesn't like debts. And I get financial debt is really bad. 
But to live completely free of debt is to live completely free of relationships, without dependencies. And that's what makes a life good, worth living. Do you know that when you were born, you received an immense inheritance? Think of all the people who have poured into you when you didn't have anything to offer. Think of the people who are pouring into other people right now in the life of this church. Each of us enters the world being owed certain things and eventually owing things to each other. Which brings me back to that church I used to work at. When we said the world has changed, what we meant was, and so have we. We haven't, we haven't started, kept being a counterculture to the, for the good of culture. We haven't not conformed to the pattern of this world. And let me tell you what that looks like, because I've seen it. It looks like the senior saints who spent decades pouring in to other people when they need people, nobody's there for them. It looks like the poor and the lonely and the sad coming to church to be a part of the body of Christ and finding that there's no one there to give. In our you-do-you world, what happens is we will come to be a part of a community as long as we get. Forgetting that because of what God has done in Jesus, we come to church to give, to lay down our life, to serve one another. So last two weeks ago, I had a dozen people send me this article. It was in The Atlantic. It's a phenomenal article. The Misunderstood Reason Why Millions of Americans Stop Going to Church. And it's written by that guy whose dad I just told you about, Jake Metters. And in it, Jake Metters is talking about how all the people he grew up with in Lincoln, Nebraska, his own age, he's a young 30-something guy, how all his peers no longer are Christians. And so he's writing this article to describe why, because he thinks the problem isn't what people think it is, and I think he's right. He said... Some of the reason that people give is because, uh, for leaving Christianity is because of corruption or religious abuse. But the biggest reason that people have left church is more common or plain. The research suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America is not set up for mutuality, for care, for living life together. Rather, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment like professional accomplishment, financial success. And such a system leaves very little time or energy for forms of community that aren't targeted on making you a better professional or making you richer. And as you get older, you want that for your kids, being a better professional, having more money. The underlying challenge for many is that our lives are, he says, our lives are stretched thin like a rubber band about to snap. And what church attendance feels like is an item on a checklist that's already too long. But, you know the Christian church is the antidote to that? It really is. It's not a checklist. It's a new list. What is more needed in our time, and I mean this sincerely, than a community marked by sincere love, sharing what we have together according to our need, 
eating together regularly, generously serving one another, living lives of quiet virtue and prayer. A healthy church, a vibrant church, is a safety net in a harsh American culture that, offer, that tells its members of the society we're in that you're only worth as much money as you have. A community of love, of mutual love that reminds people your identity is not at threat if you get laid off or you lose that job. You're children of God, loved and infinitely valuable. A vibrant, life-giving church, which by the way, I just want you to hear this. When I bring some, some people into PV and they experience for the first time, that's the word they use over and over again. A vibrant, life-giving church. A vibrant, life-giving church requires more time, not less. It asks people to prioritize each other over their own career, to prioritize prayer and scripture reading over accomplishment. It may seem like a a tough sell in an era of de-churching, but search your heart. You know this is true. The problem is not that we have some kind of healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. If it was, then this sermon's not needed. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain how to live in community with other people. And then Jake Metters ends this with this quote. He says, The tragedy of American churches is that they have been so caught up in this same world that we now find that we have nothing to offer these people, these suffering people that can't be more easily found somewhere else. So... A word of encouragement as we close this sermon. Do you know the Church of Jesus Christ is not some spiritual NGO, right? It's not a place where you come and you hear a TED talk and have some emotionally uplifting kind of experience and then you go about and, you know, do your thing. No, we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We're the hope of the world, a city set on a hill for the people watching. We are, as we do community together, this may be our most um, compelling thing about us. We are a model home of the kingdom of God. The way we share life, the way we love each other, in in the life of our groups, in the life of our assemblies, in the life of how we minister to each other, and how we give, and how we serve. We are the dream of Jesus, the healing of the nations, the life of tomorrow right here today. And that's who we are. That's who this church has historically been and who we are now. But in the words of Paul, do not grow weary in doing good. Sometimes we're so in it, we can't see how good it is. So let's keep loving being together. That's who we are.